If you would please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and I'll explain why we're going backwards uh, here in Romans. But before we do, I want to talk to you guys, uh, kind of big picture of what we're doing here this morning. Uh, I'm going to be talking to you guys about personal growth and transformation this morning, right? These are things that we love. Uh, People in general, Americans, we love origin stories. Uh, We love getting to know protagonists in his or her youth. Uh, We love uh, getting to see how far people have come. Uh, Big companies that started in basements and garages. We love stuff like that. But unfortunately, uh, you are stuck with me this morning, so you don't get a good origin story. Um, But I have come a good ways in my youth. Some things have changed from uh, when I was, was a kid. When I was younger, I was weird and I was awkward. Uh, and I was afraid to talk to girls, but, but now I'm older and I'm married, but I'm still weird and awkward and afraid to talk to girls, um, which is a good thing. I think my wife appreciates that. Uh, but one thing that has changed in my life is my career aspirations, right? Uh, think for a second about um, what you wanted to be in high school, Right. Think, think about what you wanted to be when you were in high school. When I was in high school, um, I, I attended high school in Atlanta, Georgia, um, in the suburbs. But uh, the people that I hung out with and the people that I was around, we, we wanted to be hip-hop artists. And that was me. <laughs> uh, that was who I wanted to be. I, I wanted to sign a major record deal, and I wanted to buy a big black Escalade, and I wanted to tin out the windows and put spinners on the wheels Right, so when you pull up to the red light, the wheels are still spinning, and I wanted to put lights underneath, um, and I wanted to ride around in the city listening to my hip-hop music. That is the truth. There are no pictures. There is no proof. And if there were pictures, I would not show them to you because <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but we are going to look at the way that the gospel transforms us. Right? This is not just a, a personal growth message, but we're going to see how the gospel transforms us. And what we're doing here this morning is we're doing what we're calling a review sermon. And we've built these into our Roman series. So periodically we will pause and, and we will review the previous chapters that we preached through. So we did it with Romans 1 through 3, and now we're doing it with Romans 4 through 8. Um, and the reason that we're doing this is because context is important. Uh, context to understanding words and, and understanding the Bible and context to um, understanding movies is important. Uh, not that long ago, I was invited on a guy's, a guy's night to um, watch Lord of the Rings. And, um, and, and I've never seen the movies and I've never read the books. I didn't know anything about it, but I thought, I thought, oh, well, maybe this will be my thing, right? I'll, I'll, get, I'll really get into it, and I'll understand what's going on, and then I can have a connection with these guys, and maybe Lord of the Rings will be my thing. But the way that I did that was I started asking questions, and it came across as, as annoying. <laughs> and, and I was told to stop ruining the movie. <laughs> uh, but I would ask things like, um, who's that guy? And, and what's he doing? And why are they chasing him? And which one is Lord of the Rings? Is it Voldemort or is it Yoda? I don't, I don't actually know. But uh, needless to say, I, I have not been invited back to watch a movie with those guys since. I wonder why. But the reason why I'm so annoying to watch movies with um, is because context is important. 
right? Uh, understanding the context of Romans 4 through 8 is going to be important for us uh, moving forward. So let's recap a little bit before we get into uh, Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 3, we saw uh, that we are sinful. But actually, sinful is putting it mildly. Uh, Paul's language is it's much, much stronger than that. He says things like, we have uh, become worthless and we have turned aside. Uh, he says, no one does good. He says, your throat is an open grave and there's venom under your lips. Right? Throw that on a Hallmark card um, and, and see how well it sells. But the point being is, is that we are, we are really messed up. We are far more messed up than any of us realize, which, believe it or not, is actually good news because we are really jacked up people, which is a theological term, but God still loves us anyway, right? And, and God did an amazing thing for us. So what's the solution? We're, we're unrighteous. We're, we're messed up. We're sinful. What's the solution? Well, Paul is going to offer a solution for us in Romans chapter 4, and he's going to say the solution is righteousness. But this is not a, a righteousness that comes from ourselves. This is not a righteousness that we earn. This is not a righteousness that, that we produce. This is a righteousness that comes from trusting in Jesus. In chapter 4, Paul's going to lay out his argument for justification by faith. And this is really the overall theme of the chapters that we'll be covering this morning. Paul's going to use a really strong example from the Old Testament. He's going to pull in Abraham to argue his case. And the reason why he pulls in Abraham is because he knows if he can use one of the heavy hitters from the Old Testament to argue his case, then the rest of the dominoes will fall into place. So Abraham, who is our spiritual father, who is the father of Israel, was justified by faith alone. Take a look at Romans chapter 4, verse 3. Paul pulls from the Old Testament scriptures and says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Before Abraham obeyed, before he did anything that might be construed as earning his own salvation or doing works or trying to please God, offering something to God that is his own, he believed in God's word and he believed in God's promises. And that's Paul's main argument here, is that his righteousness did not come from himself, but it comes from God. And it, it's the same way with us. This is not just applies to Abraham, but applies to us as well. Take a look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, just, justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And he says it a little bit more directly in Romans or 4, 23 through 24, he says, but the words were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him. So again, Paul's, Paul's solution here is faith in Jesus. He says to put your faith in Jesus, to trust in God and his promises, trust in the work that God has done, and then we will receive a righteousness that does not come from us, but it comes from Jesus being delivered for our trespasses and being raised for our justification. Because of Jesus' perfect, active obedience and because of his sinless life, when you believe and you put your faith in Jesus, you are counted as righteous in God's eyes. So what does it mean to be justified by faith, right? We know that this is a good thing. We know that, that we want to be justified by faith. 
But is there anything that goes along with that? What are the benefits of justification by faith? Well, we're going to see in Romans chapter 5 by itself, and then we're going to lump 6 and 7 together, and then we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, and we're going to see three ways that the gospel transforms us, three ways that the gospel transforms us as a result of justification by faith. So we're going to be jumping around a lot. We're going to be hitting a few verses, skipping large chunks. So I apologize if that's not your thing. Uh, but we're, we have to take a look at a 30,000-foot view of these chapters. So uh, if you would please take a look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. In chapter 5, Paul is going to show us how the gospel moves us from enemy to friend. From enemy to friend. Here in chapter 5, we hit a pivot in the book. Paul starts out with a therefore, uh, meaning that everything that preceded feeds into what follows. And because we are sinful people, because we need Jesus, because we are unrighteous, and because God has provided an avenue to righteousness through faith in Jesus, now here are the benefits. Take a look at verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, we have been justified by faith, and we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And often when we hear this word peace, we, we think of it as a lack of fighting. We think of it as a lack of tension. That's almost rarely the case when you apply it to real world, real world scenarios and situations, right? If you take a look at two countries where tensions are high, but there's no active fighting, you wouldn't call that peace, right? And I wrote this uh, before everything with Russia and Ukraine uh, blew up, but I had that in mind. You wouldn't call what they had before as peace. Take a look at our country, right? We're, we're divided over a, a lot of issues, some important, some not so important, but you wouldn't call what we have in our country necessarily as, as peace just because we're not actively killing each other. That doesn't mean that what we have is peace. But this word that Paul uses is much stronger than that. He pulls from the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. And, and it describes the presence of something great rather than just a lack of something. We are no longer enemies of God, but we have peace with God. We are no longer warring with God, but we have been reconciled to God. And now we are in right relation with him. He views us favorably. He takes delight in us. We are his and he is ours. And in the midst of these tensions between us and God, in the midst of the, of the hostility between us and God, God did the unthinkable. And he crossed over into enemy lines to show his love for us. All right, take a look at verse 8 in chapter 5. But God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Imagine Paul's talking about your circumstance. Right, I want you to think for a second. Who's someone that you don't like? Who's your enemy? Who's someone that maybe you would say you even hate? Would you help them? Would you do something nice for them? Would you sacrifice? Would you give up something for them? What if you were asked to lay down your life for them? Now, it's easy to sit there and, and, and shake our head and say, yes, yes, I would. Um, because one, there's, there's nothing gained or lost from this hypothetical. 
And two, it makes us look really good, right? When we say yes to questions like that, people are like, oh, wow, you're really, you're really holy. But I'd wager if push came to shove, none of us would actually go through with it. That's exactly what God did for us. We were his enemies. We were an affront to his very being. Our, our presence was offensive to his very character. We were marked as an enemy from birth. And that's how the Bible describes us. That's, that's the language that it uses. But because of God's great character and because of his great love and his mercy that he's shown on us, Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. God took us from enemy to friend. He reconciled us, right? Reconciliation is when you fix a broken relationship, right? When my wife and I are, are arguing, and, and, it's, and it's almost exclusively because of me, it is. Uh, when, we are, when we are in an argument, does someone clap at that? Okay. <laughs> when we are arguing, all right, the way that we reconcile is I take ownership and I say, I was wrong and I, and I was not smart and I apologize, right? And then we are reconciled. But that's what God did for us. That's what Jesus did for us is he took our broken and fragmented relationship and he restored it and made it whole. He calls us his friend. He made us a friend of God. So what does it mean to be a friend of God? Well, it means we are loved and cherished by God. It means we are valued by God. It means that we are never truly alone. And in preparation of this message, um, I I took a look at some studies, and studies show that um, Americans, I guess people in general, have never been lonelier than they are right now. And a lot of this is due to the emergence of social media and technology and the pandemic really accelerated things. But think about that. We live in a day and an age where because of a little rectangle in our pocket, we can, have, we can connect with almost anyone instantaneously. Just like that. We can video call them, we can text them, we can a voice call them. We can connect with anyone almost immediately. Or because of social media, we can find hundreds of thousands of people who think and believe like we do, almost instantly. But despite all that, people have never felt more isolated. Now, this isn't a rant against social media or technology. That's not what I'm doing. But this is a plea to hear what Romans 5 is saying, that you are never truly alone, that you have a friend in God. God is the best friend that you will ever have. Not only is he ever present, but he knows our cries. He hears our heart. He hears our prayers before we even voice them. He's a great comforter in times of despair, and he is an ever-present help in times of need. Now, whether or not you feel lonely, but especially if you do, Take rest and comfort knowing that if you've trusted in Jesus, you have a friend in God. Now, that's not the only way that the gospel transforms us. The second way that the gospel transforms us, we'll see in Romans 6 and 7, is that God moves us from slave to slave. And no, that's not a typo. Yes, I did proofread my sermon. But God moves us from a slave to sin to a slave to God. Take a look at Romans chapter six. 
In Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to address two key questions, two, two big issues, and both of them deal with the topic of grace. Uh, one is, is he's going to talk about how uh, grace should not be abused. Right? Sometimes we have a habit of, of using grace as a license to sin. We say, well, God forgives, so this is okay. Or this is okay because God forgives. And Paul's going to make it very clear that sin does not make God look glorious. Sin is not a form of worship. And sin, uh, grace does not give us a license to sin. The second big topic that he's going to cover, and this is what we're going to focus in on, is that you are never truly free. Let that sink in for a second. I know that, that we, sing, we sing songs about being free in Christ, and the Bible talks about being free in Christ, and that's true, and I 100% affirm that. But when it comes to moral autonomy, when it comes to freedom, or freedom from consequences, you are never truly free. Someone or something is your master. Someone or something owns you. You are either a slave to sin, disobedience, and death, or you are a slave to God, righteousness, and obedience. Take a look at, take a look at verses 5 and 6 in Romans 6. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then again in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are a slave to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. What Paul is saying here is that regardless of whether or not you mean to, regardless of whether or not you want to, you are a slave to either sin or God. There's no middle ground. No one is exempt from these categories. You, you're in one or you're in the other. Right? And, and the, the way to really find out who your master is, the one that you obey, is to take a look at your life. Examine your actions. Who are you when no one's around? That will tell you who your master is. And this word slave, we, we balk at it and, and we shy away from it, and, and probably for, for good reason, but I can assure you that, that the slavery in Paul's day was vastly different from slavery in the, in the antebellum South. Paul viewed slavery as a good thing. He identified with it. He introduced himself at the beginning of Romans as a slave to God. Sometimes it gets translated servant, but it's, I promise you it's the same word. There's a point of pride for Paul. You're either you're a slave to someone, and it's better to be a slave to God. And these aren't just internal issues where, hey, I'll make a choice, and this isn't going to affect anyone else, and, and no one's actually going to know, because the, the path that you choose will bear some kind of fruit. Take a look at verses 21 through 22. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things which you are now ashamed for the end of those things is death, but now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. 
See, sin leads to death. If, if, you choose sla- or if you choose sin as your slave master, what you get is death. But God has provided a way out of that. God has freed us from that. And he says, you can come be my servant. And you will get sanctification. And you will get eternal life. This is the free gift that is found in Jesus Christ. So here's the real question that, that, you, that you may be wondering. If we have been freed, if we are no longer under sin's control, if we are no longer enemies of God, then why doesn't our life look like that? Why are Christians still imperfect? Why doesn't our life reflect that? Well, Paul voiced a frustration that we'll see in Romans 7. So if you would please turn to Romans 7. Starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law is good. So now it is no longer but I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. So Paul is, is voicing this frustration. You can, you can hear the, the angst that, that Paul is going through. I, I want to do the good thing, but I can't. Some, I, I do the bad thing. I, I don't want to do the thing that I do, but I can't do the thing that I want to do. Right? And, and I think for a lot of us, this is, this is a very real thing that we can identify with. At least for me, we, I, I want to do the good thing. I want to please God. I want to serve God with my life. I want to be a slave to him. But I don't always. And it's frustrating and, and it can feel defeating almost. So when will deliverance come? When will we be finally and fully released from sin's custody? When will we be released from this body of death? Well, take a look at verses 24 through 25. Listen to what Paul said. He, he cries out to God. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with myself I serve the law of sin. You see, Jesus, for Paul, Jesus was his deliverer. Jesus was the way out. Jesus can be our deliverer. Jesus is the one that will free us from this body of death. When will it come? Well, not right now, but it, it will come. And that's, Paul's going to get into that in Romans chapter 8. So if you would, please take a look at Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul's going to show us how we are moved from prisoner to son. Or if you'd like, you can write child in that second blank. From prisoner to child, prisoner to son. Romans chapter 8, Paul opens up with one of the best verses in the Bible. Take a look at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, yes, we have this sinful war going on inside of us. Yes, we have our, our flesh that is battling our spirit constantly. But for those who have trusted in Jesus, we are not condemned. We are not eternally and finally punished. 
We have been freed from slavery and imprisonment to sin, and we have been made a child of God. Take a look at verses 15 through 17 in chapter 8. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified in him. You see, we were once prisoners to sin, sold under into bondage, to our slave master sin. Right? Th- think about with, with our modern day correction system, the prisoners that, that are there. Every day, same thing, closed in this small space, day after day, not knowing when or if you'll get out. And for some of them, the only end, the only way out is death. That's hard to think about. Now think what it would be like to be freed from that. One day, you can walk out. You were declared not guilty. You were declared not condemned. No gimmicks, no catches, no strings attached. You can walk out of that prison as a free, as a free man. right? And that's exactly what God does for us. He takes us from our prison, the, the, the prison that Satan builds and Satan builds. And he says, you can come out of that. You can be free. But here's the, best, here's the best part about it. It's not just, hey, you are free to do whatever you want. But God invites you into his family as a child. He says, I will free you and you can come be my son or my daughter. Right? And he welcomes you into his family and honors you as one of his children. And we get to be co-heirs with Christ Man, I don't think that we spend enough time talking about that. The things that Jesus will inherit, he shares with us. Church, that is beautiful, right? Think about the prodigal son in Luke 15, right? He, he goes off into the slop and the pigs, and, and, he's, and he's like, well, this is no good, right? I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And so he, he's walking back, and he's saying, okay, uh, maybe, maybe if I just become a servant of my father, Things will be a little bit better, and and he's working up his story on his way. And the next thing you know, he's being embraced by his father. And he says, you are my child. Welcome back into the family, and he celebrates him. That's the same way that God celebrates us. He doesn't just say, hey, you can be my servant. But he says, "You you can be my son. Even though we are freed from sin and no longer enslaved, There's still troubles, there's still difficulties, and and Paul addresses that in Romans 8. But he says, despite all that, know that God works all things together for our good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. Church, this is a very present reality for us. We are waiting for things that we cannot see. We are wanting to lay hold of things that we cannot hold right now. But this is the way that the gospel transforms us. These are things that we can embrace now. This can be our new identity. We are friends of God. We are servants of God. And we are children of God. So what shall we say to these things? Flip over to the end of Romans 8. This is how Paul concludes it in verse 31. He says, what what shall we say to these things? 
So what shall we say to these things, these, these transformations that happen to us? And Paul says, God is for us. And it's one of the most powerful statements that you can lay hold of as a Jesus follower. Despite everything in this life, God is for you and God is with you. It doesn't mean that your life is going to be perfect. But it does mean that no matter what you go through, no matter what people say to you, no matter what things people do to you, God is for you. God is with you. No one can strip these truths from you. You are a child of the one true king. When his plans become our plans, our plans cannot be thwarted and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Take rest in that. And for those of you who are here who have not trusted in Jesus, I want you to know that it is the best decision you can ever make. You can lay, you can lay claim to these promises today. You can throw off the imprisonment of sin and you can become a child of God. There is no decision like following Jesus. And for everyone in here, I want you to know that someone you know needs to hear this. Right? If, if, you're, if you walk out of these doors and you say, thank you, that was so encouraging, and you are just encouraged, then I have failed to do my job. This news is too good to keep to ourselves. There are friends, families, and neighbors that we know that need to hear these truths. And I think that sometimes we get nervous, right? When, when oh, I need, to, I need to tell someone this and, and, and you're, okay, how do I do it? I wanna share something with you as we close about evangelism. Because I think sometimes we, we overcomplicate evangelism. And I heard Pastor John Piper say once, he says, never underestimate the power of your testimony. And he uses John 9 to teach that, right? The, the blind man who was, who was born blind at birth and then, and then Jesus came and gave him sight and he, and he goes off to the priest and to the people, right? And he's really excited and he's telling them, look, I can see. And, 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 and they're, they're kind of like, no, no, you weren't blind. You can't really see. And he's like, well, yes, I can. And then they bring in his parents and they're like, is this your son? Yes. Was he blind? Yes. Can he see? And he's like, yes. Right? There is nothing that they could have done to strip that from him. No one can take away his testimony. They, they said, what happened? And he said, I was blind and then Jesus showed up and now I can see. That's all I know. His testimony trumped their doubts, their arguments, and their unbelief. And it's the same way with you. Church, if you've trusted in Jesus, you were dead, you were blind, Jesus showed up, and now you're alive and you can see. No one can take that from you. There's no argument, there's no apologetic, there's nothing that they can say that can trump what you've seen and experienced with Jesus. Share that with people. And if you're sitting there and, 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 you're, and you're thinking to yourself, well, I don't have a great testimony, I was saved in an early age, I wanna share one last thing that I heard from a pastor. He said, there's nothing unremarkable about being raised from your spiritual deadness. If you've trusted in Jesus, you were dead and you were blind, Jesus showed up and now you can see and you're alive. Share that with someone. Lay hold to these truths. Church, would you pray with me, please?